This podcast episode is brought to you by Iron Source. Iron Source are not a spinach-based nutrition company, as their name might suggest, but are actually a game tech company which builds technologies that help you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets IronSource apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super efficient way. So whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, IronSource is a perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor of Fun are giant fans of IronSource because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So we suggest that you head on over to ironsource.com, ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks. This podcast episode is also brought to you by AppsFlyer. Most of you are familiar with AppsFlyer. It's perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile, a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive marketing success. But what is attribution platform? Why do we need it? And why is AppsFlyer the best in the business? Brian Murphy, head of games at AppsFlyer. Can you answer these questions? Sure. Uh, right now, marketing budgets are being impacted. Uh, so the need for strong attribution and measurement partners is critical. Marketers should be focusing on what's working best. So mobile measurement and attribution partners who help provide uh, those insights are even more important. Mobile attribution platforms determine which campaigns, partners, and channels delivered each app install. And marketers rely on these insights to measure and optimize their marketing performance for both user acquisition and retargeting campaigns. With 1 trillion in-app events measured each month, AppsFlyer is the most robust technology platform and mobile measurement partner for any game developer to distribute and engage their application to a worldwide consumer base. Our scale and data insights provide customers with the unique ability to make informed marketing decisions. In short, AppsFlyer gives you the data and tools to market your games effectively. So there you have it, folks. Go to appsflyer.com and get yourself one of the best attribution platforms out there. Welcome everybody. We're here today to talk about the kinds of live services technology that are required for multiplayer PVP games. And just to be clear, we're going to be talking about online services. So things like accounts, matchmaking, player stats, store things like that, rather than the multiplayer networking side. And specifically, we are going to be talking about one, what are the key issues and challenges to pay attention to for scale PVP games like Riot's League of Legends, or CCP's EVE Online or Epic's Fortnite when it comes to these online services too. What current tools exist and what are the biggest technical challenges to solve them? Three, cross-platform considerations, challenges, trends. Four, matchmaking challenges. Six, reputation and behavior. And seven, just general scaling challenges. And with us today to speak about all of these issues and more is the newly funded startup, Pragma.gg. Welcome, guys, and uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I thought we could first start just by having uh, Eden, you introduce your team, or have each of you guys introduce yourselves, just given like the really fantastic backgrounds that you guys have in the games industry. Yeah, for sure. Hey, I'm Eden. Uh, thanks, Joseph, for hosting this podcast and for uh, GG Digest. Huge, uh, huge fan of the weekly newsletter. Yeah, background is so pro gamed in high school before esports was a thing, and mainly was just a huge waste of time. According to my parents, got into uh, programmatic trading when I was in college. It's just like the closest thing to playing a video game. Then I realized that uh, trading had no real impact on the world in a positive way. So got out of that after um, running a hedge fund for a few years and started a uh, development agency that uh, helped build a lot of kind of um, early stage startups in LA that are um, well known today. And Worked with a lot of the kind of Fortune 500 consumer entertainment companies for the last eight years. Had a desire to get back into games. And Chris and I had been friends for a long time. And here we are. That's, right. that's a quick version of me. <laughs> yeah. Hey, my name's uh, Chris Cobb. And got my start uh, working on back end services at Microsoft, working on advertising technology. Um, my passion was always in games, though. So when I got the chance, I hopped over to PopCap Games, where we worked on back end services for early social mobile games on Facebook and iOS. Uh, from there, I joined Riot Games uh, in 2012 to work on their backend services and platforms uh, with a particular focus on player behavior. So how do we address toxicity and hate speech and those kinds of things? I uh, spent a bunch of time on matchmaking as well, uh, supporting League of Legends across a bunch of different uh, areas. Got the itch to kind of 
head out on my own. Uh, and that's uh, where Eden and I started spending more time together as he advised me on my first uh, startup effort. We focus on educational games and trying to bring that social services kind of ecosystem alive in a different domain. And as we uh, wrap that up, Eden and I decided to kind of venture out and start working on this uh, backend services product, at which point we teamed up with a few folks who had worked together at Riot, including Nick. So I'll just hand off to him. Thanks. Uh, yeah, my name's Nick. I have a long time game developer. Got my start in mobile games before iPhones and Android were invented back in the good old days or terrible old days, depending. Decided that I wanted to branch out into a more complicated distributed system. So studied that formally, uh, got a master's in that domain and then married my passions for distributed system and games by taking a job at CCP working on the backend servers for EVE Online. And I worked out of CCP's office for almost five years doing high scaling or complicated scaling game systems for them. And then uh, joined Riot and I spent uh, almost six years writing backend systems, microservice support frameworks um, and uh, all sorts of scaling efforts over there. Uh, met Chris, met a bunch of uh, other amazing folks at Riot. And then when uh, they wanted to start their startup, then we talked together and it was a, a perfect fit for me. So I decided to join them. Uh, so it sounds like you guys all, it seems like the common thread between the three of you guys is Riot. And it's great that you guys have experience both in terms of the back end and online services, both at Riot and on uh, EVE Online at CCP. So maybe you guys could tell me a little bit about the current startup before we jump into all the other issues, as far as like, what is the thesis behind Pragma? Why did you guys leave Riot to start this company and what in terms of the problem that you guys are solving and how it may relate to you know some of the topics that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I, I can kind of kick this off. I, I think all of us are really passionate about games, and, and that's not just us three. Um, our whole team, we wanted to make a game. We all of us are interested in making games. And I think after, after talking to a bunch of friends at different studios, I think we realized that everyone was sort of saying the same thing. Number one, a lot of them wanted to outsource the, the platform piece of of, of what they were doing for these are for live service games. Um, number two, the existing solutions didn't really give them the control that they needed to kind of feel comfortable launching that. And it, and those solutions didn't allow them to scale. And then number three, when they rolled their own platform, it ended up being like multiples of the magnitudes more complex and expensive than they thought it would be. So I think the thesis really is that there's going to be more multiplayer games and live services games in the future. I think like that's sort of a trend that we're seeing in games, but that's not really, you know, it's like multiplayer Multiplayer games have been around for, you know, 20 years. And I think we're just all fans of multiplayer games. So I don't think we're, we're, try, we're trying to tra chase a trend necessarily. It's just, we all love multiplayer games. They're super hard to make today. And we hope we can be one piece that simplifies the ability to make those games. Got it. And so just kind of moving then to our the first topic, which is really around what, what are some of these key challenges then in terms of whether it's folks who are trying to roll their own solution, what are the key challenges that you guys are working on that you think would be, and clearly you guys have the pedigree and the background in terms of you know what you guys have worked on, but what is it that's going to be very difficult for some other game studio to, to develop that you guys are going to be tackling? Yeah, so, it's, so to paint the, the really big picture here, I think that right now when you try to create a, a large-scale online multiplayer video game, you both have the creative effort of building something like, you know, as creative and fascinating and as exciting as a Pixar film, while at the same time you have to build the back-end technology to support like distribution and platform and online services. Like, So it's like trying to tackle, you know, being a creative studio and a technology company all at once, right? And so it's tough <laughs> to do either one of those well. And trying to do both at the same time. You have to build basically two different business units almost, two different teams, two different organizations. It's very hard to, to pull off. And for those backend services, to, those things are necessary, but not sufficient. They have to work and they should just be silent and you know nobody should even notice that they're there. But if they don't work, you know you have these really high profile launches where a game comes out and everyone's excited about them, but the servers go down and players will spend days or weeks just waiting for their chance to even play the game let alone you know, determine whether it's great. So I think that, that at a fundamental level, we have to create this really complex technology to power a great game experience. 
and doing both at the same time is real tough. In terms of building that team, you're competing with the big tech shops, you know, the Amazons and Googles and Facebooks. And one, that's really difficult from a talent perspective. And second, those expertise, you need somebody who can do the large scale backend systems, but also has a passion and excitement for games. And so finding, you know, those folks who have both um, definitely is a challenge. One thing we like to distinguish between is the in-game experience. Um, that's your 3D graphics engine, your online multiplayer, your, your game networking from your out-of-game systems. And these are like the metagame and your progression, and your rank systems and your matchmaking and your friends list. So those are the areas that the online services tend to cover, those out-of-game systems. Um, yeah. But the two kind of have to work in concert together to kind of put all the pieces there. And in practice, for a, a studio trying to pursue that, you're going to have to hire just a basically the same number of services engineers as you hire game engineers. So not only is it hard for, to find those folks, but you need a lot of them. And that's because we make living games now. This is not like a build it once and then spin that down. Uh, most big studios will build a large services team that you know will live indefinitely. Right. And so, so when I, I look at your website and then look at some of the services that you guys are working on, account services, game loop, player data services, social systems and achievements, platform services, store, like which of those, in your opinion, what's like the most challenging part? And what's like the technical issue underlying the challenge behind implementing whichever one of those services would be the most difficult for a game studio to develop on their own? Yeah, I guess I'll briefly just note that one, there are a lot of them and they have to work in concert sure. with another. Yeah. So part of the challenge is surely the scope. There are different flavors. So I think we will break down different pieces of that as we as okay. we develop. Um, yeah. And I think that it might be helpful to, to kind of tackle what is out there for folks, you know, what tools and services are available sure. to kind of set the stage for then driving into Got all it. the so then, yeah, so maybe we could talk about that. And as far as I know, in terms of like online services, when I think about some of the the external third-party guys out there, you think of companies like PlayFab, think of companies like GameSpark, uh, certainly Epic announced that they're going to have their online services. In, I'm not sure if they support mobile yet or not. But, not uh, yet, but they plan to, yeah. They, they, they plan to. Mm-hmm. So could you guys speak in terms of like, how would you characterize the current players out there? Are those like the primary players? Who else is out there? Uh, what, what do you think of the services that are currently out there right now? Yeah, I mean, so there's, there's sort of like what you mentioned. I think the PlayFab, GameSparks, uh, EOS, which is Epic's kind of new effort. I think all of us, if you look at like sort of the feature set, yeah, um, it's going to be pretty similar, um, okay. that stack of things. And those are, again, like these are, kind of online services that we're talking about, um, anywhere from like account uh, services to inventory stats, the social features, and then um, the game loop, which is the lobby experience all the way to like game allocation and then um, out of game experience in terms of looping it back to the the platform side. So I think in terms of those services are very, very similar. And then outside of that stack, we would interact directly with the sort of like game server stack you mentioned briefly like Photon as an example, which might be used. Oh, you mean for the multiplayer? Yeah, on the multiplayer side, okay, we would engage it. kind of with the the game server kind of networking side, which I see. sort of like the, is, the, is the Photon layer. And then, so there's there's a lot of different, and then there's also uh, server management or fleet management, which, you know, multiplayer handled for Apex, which is like really like where the, da- the actual data centers are located and then like, you know, which data centers to spin up or which servers to spin up in which location when you start a game. And then there's other new companies that are that are handling that, like GameEye is um, some ex-multiplay guys that launched um, to do something similar. Um, and then you also have sort of like the uh, simulation layer, which is, you know, the improbable. Uh, there's a new company called Incoherence targeting that space. So there's there's a lot of different moving pieces here. And we're, you know, focused on that that platform side, which is again pretty similar to the the EOS, PlayFab, GameSparks, and obviously we can talk about what we felt like we could contribute to the space. But just wanted to sort of lay out all the different pieces just to right. get you to, you know, the game. <laughs> right, 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 right. And so, yeah, so let's talk about that part then. So, how would you guys? differentiate yourselves from a PlayFab GameSparks? Because it sounds like these are the closest mm-hmm. comparisons, right? The PlayFab's GameSparks and EOS. And then from the Epic side, since you know those guys are crazy and they're, they're offering their stuff for free, 
what part of your solution would entice game developers to pay for some other solution? And by the way, I don't know much about Epic solution. I don't know so, if it's any good or not. <laughs> but, but please let me know. I, everything I Epic does is good. good. Yeah, so like when you look at all those different moving parts and you're trying to piece them all together and tie them together, yeah. I think that the an analogy I think that would help kind of put this all into context is the game engine. Back in the day, we didn't have these really high quality uh, game engines. So if you wanted to build a video game, you also had to build a graphics engine and uh, you know all of those tools and layers. And what we found is as um, you know Unity and Unreal became more mature and more available, then now you know those don't make a video game for you, but there's thousands of engineering years behind that technology that allows you to build on top and create much more sophisticated experiences. So when you go to the services side, we don't have anything like that today. There's no toolkit. There's no framework for you to build on top of. And so people end up having to start from scratch. So the current offerings that are available now are what we call managed services, which is um, any of these companies have built a set of tools and they host them on, you know, Amazon or Google cloud for you. And you can plug into that. And the nice thing about that is it gets you going very quickly, but the, the next step though, when your game has custom needs or you're trying to do specific features or rich, deep, deeply integrated features, the challenge becomes if it's somebody else's service, it gets, it's a lot harder for you to customize. So with unreal engine, you get the actual source code. And so on the one hand, you can just use it as is, but on the other hand, you can go under the hood and make those modifications that you need specific to your game. So when you look at a title like Riot's recently released, Valorant, because that game is very specific as a tactical shooter, the need to go into that networking layer and make that thing do exactly what's needed for that game experience is possible with a game, with a game engine that allows you source code access like Unreal. So when we look at the, the landscape today, it's really easy to get started on one of these services. But the challenge becomes when you have specific needs, it's a lot harder for you. You know, you make a feature request of another company and they've got their own priorities and their own schedule um, as opposed to having full control. And so that's kind of the angle that we took was, hey, let's create the game engine for backend, which is we have a group of folks who've built these systems for a long time, but then make that source code available for folks to utilize so that they can extend it and build on top of it and customize it. Yeah. So one of the advantages with you guys is there would be uh, source access, but from like a features or functionality or scalability perspective, is there any like why you know in addition to the customization, which which is pro- is you know a big deal, is there any other way that we should be thinking about the advantages of using what what you guys are doing, or can, could you help uh, you know for some of us because you know, I I work with a lot of you know kind of higher level guys product managers, execs. And so if if I'm a product manager or an executive trying to understand your your solution relative to EOS, relative to PlayFab or GameSparks, how should I be thinking about like the relative strengths, strengths and weaknesses of each of these solutions? Yeah, I mean, I could speak very briefly and then have these guys kind of yeah. go into the details. But I mean, I think the kind of the devil's really in the details of something like this. Uh, I mean, I do think the features are going to be very similar in terms of what's stated. Um, If you look at our sites, you'll probably see like a very similar set of features, but I'll just like give you um, an example of like, if you're, for example, for us, um, as we build out like, you know, the, like just something simple like the SDK layer, um, there's a lot of different things that we noticed um, that, um, you know, would be really, really helpful for us as we, you know, build something like that. For example, like um, no reference implementation, um, no ability to see like best practices um, and the ability to do something like mocking or uh, um, the ability to do something like state caching. Um, so I think when uh, people actually start to use tools, um, they're, the, the actual feature sets are not different, but the ways that we approach something like the SDK I just mentioned are going to be pretty different. Right. Um, I'm not saying like we're necessarily better or worse um, because again, like some managed services are going to make a lot of sense for, for example, like the use case for PlayFab that's worked very, very well is that you're a uh, indie mobile developer and uh, player data is, um, you know, extremely important part of what you're doing. Um, but you're maybe not a live service multiplayer game. Uh, now, something like saving game state or something, that may be like extremely relevant for something like PlayFab. 
and like using our solution would not make sense for that. You wouldn't want to roll like this um, large platform that's dealing with you know lots of different things. You may just want you know um, game state uh, and you know where you know saving the the last place that you were in your game, and that's like all you want to do. Um, and you don't want to manage your own infrastructure. You don't want to you know host something on AWS yourself. So that's not going to make sense for you. So that that's a situation where like a playfab would make a lot of sense. Um, so it's more the approach that we're taking is a little bit different. So I'll, I'll, I'll pause. I don't know if Chris or Nick, you guys have any. I mean, I, yeah, I can I can talk to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think if you if you look at the Playfab offerings, and, and I'm using Playfab, but it's the same for EOS or any of the hosted offered building mm -hmm. block services, right? What they offer you is exactly that: building blocks for your thing, and within one flavor and uh, one set of assumption that they've decided is the way to do things. And Eden is right. For some games, it will certainly be a very good fit, right? You're going to find yourself with like uh, the the perfect GameSpark use case or something, and it will just work. I think the Pragma idea is that we want to give the developer that sense of control that if they want to make a rich game experience that isn't already decided by how EOS has laid out its matchmaker, right? Um, it is completely possible for you to do that and to create that rich experience. Um, it's not possible. You're not going to go and knock on Epic's door and be like, hi, I would like to modify EOS right now to do my thing, right? And, um, that, that's not, it's not realistic. But if you have access to source code for Pragma, you are completely empowered to do that. The hope is that because we're pre-packaged, pre kind of holistic in how we bundled all our services together, the cost of doing that for a studio is very low. So we're, what I think one of the nice things that Prime was going to offer is, is that ability to, at very low cost, customize an online game experience. Um, Chris' analogy is correct, right? It, it's the Unreal or the Unity idea where you don't have to be the world's leading 3D programmer to make a 3D game in Unreal. It used to be the case that you had to be, but it's not the case anymore. So making that amazing backend rich experience without having to hire 10 Google top tier engineer in your team and blow your whole studio budget on that, you know, is, is, is what I think would be the biggest difference there. And so can you guys help me understand like what kind of, could you give me like the profile of the type of game or the type of game studio that would pick you guys versus an EOS versus a PlayFab? Yes, yeah, so to, to touch on that, I think that one of the characteristics we also aspire to is that achieving massive scale, having worked on some of these giant video games. Uh, the challenge is to build that custom up front for a studio that's not sure they're going to be successful is a very high cost. Uh, but but what you will struggle with is if you happen to catch off, uh, to take off and, and you start to become successful. If your platform can't scale with you, you're in a really tight spot because now you have to kind of play catch up. But you're at that moment that you're trying to uh, realize success. So you launch your game, everyone loves it, and they all show up. But if your platform can't support you, then that's the moment in time that you have to start building, uh, which is kind of a fright prospect. On the other hand, you have to be, um, you know, you have to have really large capitalization uh, if you're going to go build that up front due to how expensive and time, uh, time intensive it, it is to build. So the customers that I think we target early on, especially as our product you know comes to life, would be folks who are pretty well capitalized that come out of maybe a AAA tradition who are now going independent. Yeah. So, you know, we might call these double, double A's or triple I's. Um, these are folks who have experience building large-scale video games, but might not have the experience in online services. Now, I think we do also aspire um, a lot of making this accessible to people is how do you run this thing in a way that's straightforward if you're not already a services expert? So even our early customers, we're still striving to offer a degree of simplicity in how this is operated that is quite different than most kind of like complex technical products. Our hope then is that as we grow and expand our feature set, that we become more and more accessible to a smaller indie shop or you know a, a smaller studio. But that's probably not where we start. We're focused more on somebody who's aspiring to create, you know, a giant video game that can scale to millions of players. Um, that you know is a rich, deep kind of online service-based game. Got it. And so if if I'm translating this for a dumb executive, you know, like like myself. Uh, maybe you can, you know, check me in terms of my translation of what you guys have talked about. So one, 
access to source, so you can do a lot of you know deep customizations if necessary. Too, there's a lot of to your point, Eden. A lot of the devils in the details in terms of yeah, I can say you know company A has a match three game, company B has a match three game, but there's a lot of specific nuance in terms of how you guys implement the features. Three scale, which is that you guys have built this thing to be massively scalable, uh, and uh, probably for in terms of this last statement that you made around uh, simplification. So you guys are trying to make this thing as easy to use as possible, possibly with the added advantage of maybe reducing your requirement for DevOps and operations, basically. Is that a good characterization? You're hired. Yeah, no, that's, that's, <laughs> okay, exactly, that's exactly right. Um, no, I, I think like, and to Nick's point too as well, it, it has a lot to do with um, you know, when you talk about something like matchmaking, yeah, again, there's so many different ways to do matchmaking and, you know, might make sense for us to go into that a little bit, you know, more, yeah. but the, importantly, if someone has a view on matchmaking and they're a managed service, you do, you cannot, again, change the philosophy of matchmaking that they've taken. You automatically inherit their version of matchmaking. So it's not so much that we think we have the most superior, I mean, Maybe we do, but even if we didn't, it's not so much that we believe that we can build the best matchmaker in the world. It's the fact that we know that we can't build a matchmaker that works for everyone. Um, so that, that again, I guess that's to your first point, um, but I just wanted to sort of nuance, like even when you're talking about, um, you know, us saying, oh, the devil's in the details, but those details also are different for every person. <laughs> so. Right. So maybe we could talk about that. So, so matchmaking, I think from a user perspective, they're like, well, you know, I just get matched and somehow things happen. But certainly, depending on, for competitive multiplayer games, there's a lot of different matchmaking types of systems, right? And whether it's like, even between like, even on the mobile side, I'm more used to the mobile side, but like a Clash Royale versus a, a Arena of Valor has very different types of systems. Also in terms of matching with bots, what they do, like a bot-heavy game, like a Call of Duty Mobile versus another, another game, that doesn't have a lot of bots like you know Vigor on Xbox, and then you're waiting like forever. So like, could, could you talk to us about? You tell me what what are the key challenges with matchmaking, and what are some of the customizations that that studios should be thinking about when it comes to matchmaking? Yeah, so this is an area I spent about five years on while at Riot, and so it's something that I'm kind of passionate about, and <laughs> and it's just a fascinating space. It's one that like the more you unpack it, kind of the deeper the rabbit hole goes, so to speak. Right. So. You know, at the very top for matchmaking, you you just think about okay, what's our goal? And it's like you want to connect players together such that they have an excellent gaming experience. Right. And one of the immediate challenges you face when you start doing matchmaking is, you know, who's going to win that match or or who's most likely to win. And so, the interesting thing is that your goal would be that everyone wins about fifty percent of their games, right? Because <laughs> if you're trying to make fair matches, then you win half, you lose half. Well, that can already put a, you know, a, a challenge on you as a game developer because winning only half your games might feel poor. And this is actually where bots come into, question, uh, you know, into play. Um, but so at the highest level, we want to make a great game experience. You have this fundamental trade-off between speed and quality. So you can just do what, what we usually refer to as warm body matchmaking, which is if somebody shows up, we just pair them off and you know, uh, start the game, versus like skill-based matchmaking where you've got an ELO or a true skill kind of system, um, you know, a lot of heavyweight math trying to calculate. And what matters, I guess, uh, is making a choice where on that spectrum you want to live. You know, do you want to prioritize just throwing people together? Well, the trade you're making then is that, you know, the quality bar is going to be very different. Some games you might get to crush your opponents and win quickly. Other games, you might be the one getting crushed. And so um, those dynamics are not as simple as they might seem at first because, for example, uh, you know, if you say we aspire to make the tightest matches possible, you know, there's a term called sweaty matches, which is, you know, it's a high intensity match when you're matched perfectly with somebody else. And so those tend to be a lot more stressful and they take a lot more energy. So if you're trying to make a very competitive esports based, you know, uh, ranked system, that's a great kind of thing to pursue. If you're trying to make a casual game that's more about fun and just throwing in, then you actually might want to keep those, uh, those boundaries a little looser. So those are the kinds of trades you want to make. And to create a matchmaking 
system, it both has to scale to allow all those users to come in at once. Then it also has to be tunable and you have to have all the metrics and analytics data and processing and graphs to look at the, the profile and then all the tools you need to tune and optimize and change those things. Um, so, so that gets into kind of the quality and time trade. Bots are, play an interesting role in that because one, if you play against a bot, there's the convenience that you can always have somebody, you know, a player to beat up on. On the other hand, it it can feel, you know, sometimes players uh, don't like to play against bots if they don't intend to. And so there's a lot of questions, especially on the mobile space, about do you skies that you are playing against bots, uh, things of this nature. Just to unpack a whole other kind of category, there's kind of the difference between what we call automated lobbies versus server-based matchmaking. So back in the old days in Battle.net, you would have a list of games that somebody had crafted and you'd have a lobby host and you would just kind of scroll down the list and maybe they would say, hey, players of this rating only, um, but there was no automated matchmaking. So some of the um, early efforts were just tools to make lobbies automated, which is the player downloads a list of games and instead of seeing it visually, you might write a little algorithm to match them together. The difference with this is it's gonna be a much more casual experience because it's client authoritative. The client gets to choose which player it's matched up against. So it's hard to enforce you know, competitive integrity and things like this. It's hard to do deep analytics on that kind of experience. And so this gets also back to some of the product differentiation. Um, automated lobbies are very easy to implement, but don't really achieve that rich service-based game experience that you might expect from a more modern competitive game. Um, so if you're making something you know, oriented towards esports, for example, you're gonna need that richer server-based matchmaking. Right, and most of the existing matchmakers are sort of automated lobby experiences. So that's again, like everyone can say they're, they have matchmaking, but when we talk about matchmaking, we're talking about um, server-based matchmaking. So just to differentiate something like that where, you know, and, and again, not everyone needs server-based matchmaking either. So not necessarily saying one's better than the other, but that's just the approach that we're taking as a service-based matchmaker. And when you're talking to customers or, you know, from your experience at, at Riot, like what are the primary, just to go back to a point you were talking about, Chris, in terms of the different objectives. So, you know, if I were to think about it, one, you know, one of the things you mentioned is you can try to optimize against match times, right? So just try to get people in a game as quickly as possible. The second you mentioned is just the player experience so that you try to get to that whether it's a 50% win rate or, you know, I would advocate for more of a 55 to 60% win rate, but there's that. And then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then are there any other like objectives that people think about as a, you know, as a product manager or, or designer in terms of making sure that the matchmaking is optimal? Yeah, I think that there, so a couple things to kind of dig into that landscape a little deeper. Um, one question is like where you're at in the life cycle of your game. So if you're launching a brand new title and you don't yet have a, a large user base, for example, you know, I would definitely recommend just as a default instinct that you want to prioritize match times because the worst feeling for players is jump into a new title and it feels empty or the match times feel long. Um, right. So you have to be really conscientious about that. Another factor that's very importantly related to that is how many different cues um, so for example, let's say you have an adventure, you know, a cooperative online adventure game where you're partnered up with players. If you have 30 locations on the map and players are matched based on each map, you've broken your population into 30 pieces. You, you're almost never <laughs> going to have great match times, even if you just have it in that kind of like warm body take anyone mode. So you have to be really conscientious on your game design that you don't want to create too many distinct matchmaking buckets. And that's a really common mistake. Um, you can see like, uh, I'm trying to think back. Um, I think it was the first Star Wars Battlefront, um, you know, very shortly after launch because they had 20 discrete matchmaking maps and they, they, asked players to select a single one, even though there were a lot of players playing in that moment, if you picked the wrong map, if you didn't know what was popular because you were brand new, you could sit there for 15, 20 minutes while the map right next to you that you've, you didn't click on, you know, has tons of players flowing through it. So, so those are some really critical kind of considerations to make. Right. Um, just just kind of as we're speaking, just kind of thinking about other potential things to consider will be like, for example, Supercell and Clash Royale uh, accounts for losing streaks. So they put losers in the same bucket so that you eventually win and also probably like ping times too right so like trying to get people that are geographically close together or have low relative ping times together so yeah i, I guess you can you can create a fairly complicated uh, match that's crazy that is, 
that is the problem with matchmaking. It's because the natural tendency that we have is to add axes by which we want to matchmake, right? You're like, oh, right. I'll add language. Okay, uh, the time zone, uh, experience in the game. <laughs> Everything like would indicate that it should make a better match, and then you end up with the population problem that Chris was talking about. You're like, well, right. I have five people in this Venn diagram I've created. Yeah, and especially if you have like a progression-based game, right? Like, like a Clash Royale, where there is a little bit of you know, my cards are going to be different from your cards, but then you're, you're also then wrapping in skill against the progression of your cards and units. And the further that is, the further that spreads out your population. So it could be anything like roles and, le and league. Mon mon monetization status. Like you just, yeah. you know, like oh, I've, I've bought all the super flamey swords <laughs> and I stomp everybody, right? Like, uh, does that feel good? Is that not? It's a, it's a very, very complicated thing. Every time you add a variable to matchmaking, it makes it much more complicated. Right. Degrading the performance correctly with a smaller population is both art and science um, right now yeah. i will say this like as as a potential customer of your tools i will say that maybe the the technology that i would really appreciate that if, if you guys put into your matchmaker would be something that's more that's basically like a discovery algorithm that basically says okay we're gonna we're going to run a bunch of different matchmaking algorithms and just automatically like more multi-arm bandit style try to determine what are the things that, so as Chris, you mentioned, you're going to tie the matchmaker to like different potential KPIs or outcomes. So that, you know, if you say, okay, well, if we have shorter match times, then my ARPU curve or my retention profile looks like this based upon what that looks like. Or if I have better player experience, that's going to lead to better outcomes. And so like, Again, just as a potential customer, if you guys could create that kind of discovery mm -hmm. algorithm that tells me this is the the optimization that makes the <laughs> the user experience a lot better or that improves our KPIs, that would be fantastic. Yeah, no, I think that that's, um, I think you touch on a really cr crucial point in this, that it's not just about the matchmaker successfully pairing players together, but it is that analytics pipeline. It's that ability to observe what's going on. And given the complexity of the space, you know, this is another area that I'm really excited to be, you know, uh, working on Pragma is to, to put sane defaults in place and to help people kind of get started in the right direction. And one of those factors is it is very easy to start adding variables like Nick points out. And as soon as you start interleaving so many cross sections, anybody ability to even reason about what's happening or why kind of goes out the window. And so one of the kind of guiding overall principles you want to take is use as few variables as possible. So it, which is a little bit counterintuitive because you think more is better oftentimes, but it turns out that if, if you turn one dial and it moves six different metrics in six different directions, it turns out that you just, you know, even if you build all the analytics. So one of the things that we care a lot about is one, uh, supporting that stats pipeline and making it accessible for people to hook that into, you know, big um, data processing tools and frameworks and, and visualizations. We'll have some of that out of the box, but we're also going to make sure that it's easy to integrate into the already standard, you know, robust analytics packages. But then the next thing I think we can strive towards is providing that foundation that says here are the key matchmaking criteria that you should start with and you know just helping people to understand that adding more is not always going to help them and then if you can tie that back to what you're talking about which is establishing which kpis you know long-term retention you know is still going to drive up your ltvs but it may not affect your you know arpu right immediately and so that's the you can see those kinds of trades where um you know, you can optimize for short-term conversion of like, oh, if we sell power, then the players feel stronger and then they buy more and we see the numbers go up. It's like, oh, but if that hits your long-term retention, because right. like all your players are churning out, then in, in the end, it actually could do you more harm. And so I think there's definitely the desire to both make those analytics available and then also provide some of that kind of guidance or sane defaults and kind of help people right. see um how to how to start optimizing yeah and then i i can definitely see the value proposition that you guys are coming forth with because as a game studio trying to work on a game and then having to think about all this other crap oh we got to build this, yeah, and, this and this and it's just like ah shit let's just let's just buy the the you know the off-the-shelf solution from someone someone else who's figured it out so yeah and, I, and like i i think that's why in in a lot of ways it's not just the technical challenge of building a platform i think you know i started off saying like we all love games yeah. Um, and if you don't, um, even with something like, you know, repu like all the things that we're talking about, matchmaking, reputation, behavior, 
good outcomes mean that the player has a good experience. Um, and if you don't understand games, but you just understand tech, then you don't, you, you don't understand how that tech may translate into a bad player experience, for example. Um, so it, it really does come down to how do you make a better player experience, even with something like matchmaking. And matchmaking is like everything in some ways, because if, if you just get stomped every game, you're going to feel, no matter how good the game is, you're just going to feel like this game sucks. Right. And, you know, and, you know, one of the other challenges with matchmaking is the cross-platform aspect. So maybe we could actually dive into that. So certainly when we are able to power cross-platform, it kind of helps in the sense that it gives you, uh, especially if you have a thin population, depending on the type of game that you have, you know, it'll help you get that additional CCU for matchmaking. But could you guys talk about some of the some of the things you guys think about with respect to you know challenges and considerations as far as cross platform is going? I think from the industry perspective, and you know, if you talk to venture, venture capitalist guys, and you know, they're always going to be like, "Oh yeah, cross platform is the future," blah 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 blah. But in terms of like some of the technical challenges and maybe some of the services that you guys are thinking about, how how are you guys thinking about cross platform? Yeah, at the absolute highest level, I think there are two different kinds of challenges. There are technical challenges and business challenges. Okay. Um, the, the business challenges relate to the fact that a platform provider, so this could be your Xbox Live or your PlayStation Network or your Steam or your Epic Store, um, they have a vested interest, obviously, in uh, growing a user base on their own platform. And so there's a lot of artificial barriers that are in place about restrictions on how you facilitate cross-platform play and you know to their credit i think with Fortnite's success uh, epic has been very active at trying to break those barriers down because they believe it'll benefit players um, to be able to play anywhere you know um, cross-platform and there's been really interesting and kind of valuable stories of players saying oh i haven't talked to my xbox friends since i picked playstation like eight years ago you know and now we can play together and so i think there's something really valuable for the social dynamic and the social ecosystem. And so that's just the business side. The technical side comes with a whole host of challenges. And some of those cross right back to the business because some of those challenges are having to customize the technical solutions based on the platform restrictions. Um, so at a fundamental level, you have to have a shared account that is connecting all these different other accounts together. So you might be able to log in with your game login or your Xbox or your PlayStation. So there's a, a bunch of sophistication around just creating an account system that is uh, shared between the, all those. Then you have to account for rules about like, you might not be able to show an Xbox logo on a PlayStation. So you have to customize even the UI and the friends list and how those things interact. And then you get into the actual um, kind of cross-play, cross-progression stuff. So cross-progression is simply that if I log in on two different platforms, I, I log into one account and all my account data is there, um, which is kind of sounds obvious, uh, but there's, you know, uh, if you saved all the data on somebody's Xbox user ID and then they log into a PlayStation, well, it turns out like you don't even have the identifier necessary to load that data. Um, so something as small sounding as that, um, can be a barrier. And for example, Minecraft Dungeons right now is struggling with that because they actually have cross-platform support, but they don't have that integrated account representation um, fully fleshed out at this point. Now, is there any technology that addresses some of the, the gameplay sort of challenges when it comes to cross-platform? So you know, as an example, if, if you're playing Call of Duty Warzone and someone's on a PC and mouse versus someone else on a you know, <laughs> on, uh, using a console controller, they're, they're just going to get, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be no contest, right? Or even like when I play Call of Duty Mobile and I pair my controller and play someone, you know, who's just using their fingers, I'm going to destroy those guys as well. So is there any, like, is there any technical way to solve some of those gameplay challenges or you're just going to have to assume that, you know, if the different platforms are going to have a different level of uh, skill associated with those platforms? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it also depends on the game because there are going to be very, um, you know, sure. if you're talking yeah. about like turn Clash Royale, it doesn't Yeah, exactly. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, you're talking with FPS for sure, like a mouse and keyboard is going to be um, hugely advantageous. Right. Um, you know, Fortnite has had that, you know, cross play kind of deal. I think, um, yeah, there's so many decisions there, uh, I think, that are, are really left to the individual ultimately. Uh, to make. I mean, our view is that even with mobile, 
we don't necessarily feel like the best experience for the player is to have the same mobile experience as they have on like their console. Right. Um, and we've talked a lot about like what it looks like to have companion applications where it's not just Fortnite on my phone um, that looks exactly like, because playing Fortnite on your phone is not a good experience um, for anyone. Uh, a lot of people just log on for the social experience. Um, and so I think that's, as mobile and console PC start to become one industry a lot more in the next like kind of five years, um, I think we're going to see a lot more, more like companion applications where it's not just um, to your point, there is that cross play cross progression type stuff, but it's not just like, Oh, let's just have the same experience at all our devices. Yeah, because of probably what you mentioned. Yeah, and on the technical side, there, the, the good news is there are technical solutions to this. For example, you can detect peripherals being attached to a mobile device. You can have your matchmaking queues broken off based on which platform you're logged into. Um, and those are the kinds of features you're going to need to support cross-play and cross-platform. And that's definitely the kind of thing we'll be able to, for example, we have you know the, the platform you're logged into is going to be core to how all these pieces fit together. So that'll be available to the matchmaker, for example. But again, you actually bring it right back to the matchmaking discussion, which is it does create a new vector. So it's something you have to be aware of. Um, but yeah, so the, the good news is there are technical approaches to help address this. And it is ultimately a, you know, a business and product decision. Like even back when Halo 1 went to PC, they, they started with cross-platform matchmaking. And suddenly it became apparent that using a mouse is a lot more effective. And there were even in-game ways that they attempted to address that, which is the, um, the controllers had a sticky aim system. And so it was a weird one though, because how calibrated that was would affect obviously the ratio of um, kind of skill. Uh, like, and so if you overtune you know, a, a, an auto-aim feature, uh, based on a controller, you actually might get to a point where you have a competitive advantage over a mouse and keyboard player. Right. Whereas if you left the two naive or by default, then the, the mouse and keyboard player would have the advantage. So maybe shifting to our next topic about reputation and behavior, maybe I could actually even get you guys to define what this means for you guys. I think from my perspective, it's really about, you know, more Kind of two things. One is just like toxic behavior. Like you get pissed off at people during a match and like you fed the other team, you bastard, blah, 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 blah. And then kind of a second piece is more around not so much like the chat and stuff that happens uh, during the game, but more around like some of the things that happen in terms of like player names. And, uh, you know, we've, we, we saw that during the Black Lives Matter movement that you know, Activision had this big thing about trying to get rid of a lot of the racist stuff in in, in uh, Call of Duty uh, Warzone. And, you know, I think anyone who's played a multiplayer PvP game before has seen a lot of racism, right? It's so like, you know, just replacing Gs with Qs or whatever, it's, it's pretty bad. And so, like, so one, maybe you guys could talk to me about how you guys are interpreting uh, reputation and behavior and then yeah, what, what, what do you guys, and if you guys have any products, or what, do, what are you guys doing to address that? Well, just one more thing to add to that okay. on my end is not just the uh, voice chat side, but there's also the whole side of if, uh, you know, if you're playing a ranked lobby and someone leaves in the middle of that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. game, um, how, are, how are you dealing with that person? <laughs> um, do you so should your score go down if you feed or not? <laughs> right, so yeah. There's, these there's, are the great so questions, right? Yeah, these are the gameplay questions outside of just like, the hate speech stuff, but you know, I know Chris worked on this for a long time, so I'll probably let him. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this is the area of most interest to me in, in games. And, you know, I think all of us ask ourselves, like, is what, is what I'm contributing to the world valuable? And having worked on behavior at Riot was something that really was fulfilling to me on a personal level, because it was nice to know that we were taking steps to try to first just understand the space. Um, and then how do we build tools to kind of uh, address this? And we learned a lot in that journey. And I was really glad to be kind of on the forefront of exploration and how we address these topics, um, even to the point where I think that there were outcomes and learnings we were taking away, even as, you know, big shops like Twitter and Facebook on the social media side were saying, we don't know how to, we don't know how to deal with this and address this. I think that that intensity and the importance has only increased as we've, you know, seen so much um, kind of the dynamics of social media's influence on the world has been you know, further explored and discussed recently. So at, 
at the highest level, I think that again, you have to establish like, what are your goals first? On the one hand, you can say, hey, I don't want people, you know, uh, expressing hate speech. I don't want bad names. It, it is really frustrating to me as a parent to play a game that is otherwise pretty friendly, but then to not have any filters on usernames. And then it's like, oh, well, there's all sorts of kind of gross stuff going on. Um, so there's a ton. The space is really complex. It's really deep. And one of the first observations there is none of these are essential features to make your game go live. And because of this, it is oftentimes prioritized uh, low, uh, which is understandable You know, if you have a limited budget and you're trying to release a game. However, I think that we have an obligation to do better at this uh, in this domain. And this is a huge part of my personal passion for Pragma is we can get some of those foundational layers of technology and features in place so that we can then invest in these areas and create this toolkit that is no longer this, you know, very expensive R&D, you know, effort over five to 10 years for, for studios to kind of learn it from first principles. So that's like <laughs> the high level. Uh, when we get into kind of the practical considerations, the first question to answer is, are you going to be uh, an enforcing third party? So like as a game studio, do you decide which words are okay and not okay? and try to you know, limit it that way. Obviously, I think there's a ton of problems with this. And so one of the first lessons we learned um, on, on Riot's behavior team was we need to give players the tools to build the communities they want. And um, there's a lot to unpack there, but it's important that we are not the authority sitting on the outside telling people you're allowed to say X, you're allowed to say Y. Uh, for all the buzzwords around AI machine learning, this is a space that is very well suited to those patterns. Because for example, you can build, um, you can build a chat sentiment model such that you use player reports of negative behavior um, compared to the actual data that's present in like chat logs. And you can build a model of what's okay and not okay to say based on player input. It's the model is not based on a blacklist of words that you're not allowed to say. Um, it's based on, you know, what players say is okay and not okay. Um, there's a whole nother level then when you talk about, a culture of uh, it's easy. They talk about, you know, who's got the microphone, people who are loud and aggressive and noisy tend to grab a lot of attention. So there's a whole family of how do we reduce the volume of folks who are intentionally trying to create uh, strife? Um, and then how do we elevate the voices of those community members who are there to support and build up and encourage and, you know, mentor and, and build community. And you have to explicitly pursue that. And I think this is an area where you see something like Twitter, you are rewarded as a Twitter user for saying inflammatory remarks because it grabs attention and attention results in likes and shares and, and discussion. And that builds your reputation. So you have to be really careful that as you build uh, reputation systems that you don't just reward the loudest voice, you actually reward the things that you want to see in your community. Um, and ideally that should be represented by what players want to see and, you know, not a, a vocal minority who are just the loudest, um, but also not like what the game studio themselves have decided they, they like or don't like um, within limits though. Cause then there's also the question of how much obligation do we have to stop things like, um, you know, that are prejudiced or, you know, right. addressing hate speech and things in media. Yeah, I do think that this is an area that's going to become increasingly important. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of highlighted the need for more enforcement here. And we've seen that this is turning into like, because we've seen Activision kind of crack down on this, we realize this is going to become more of a business case and something that we're going to have to invest in, which is, I, I think is a good thing. And also because if we invest in it, it all of a sudden also broadens our audience. Like I've got young kids. I'm not, I, I'm not going to let them go into a game where there's a lot of weird, racist, blah, blah, you know, profane speech, all that kind of stuff. And so the better these tools are at getting rid of that, I think that will allow your dem age demographic to age down as parents kind of okay their kids to, um, to kind of, you know, play some of those games. But I would say that as a potential customer, I do think that it would also be useful if, you know, for you guys to just start with like a template saying, okay, look, because I don't want to like, as a, you know, uh, as a game studio exec say, okay, well, we need somebody go, go look up the 500 words we're going to block. And, you know, you, you do this and every game studio is doing that on their own today. Right. And kind of coming up with their own rules and things like that. But if someone could at least start with a template and say, here's our list, then it's like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's use the pragma bad words list you know, 5.6, and then just, we'll just modify that or add these things or whatever. 
So from a customer perspective, yeah. I do think it might be useful for you guys to like get into also that content part of it just to save potentially the whole industry a lot of time. Right. And yeah, I think to Chris's point, there's the tools to allow the players to. Right, right. Yeah, that. That, and then there's all. Well. Yeah. And then there's also the um, the things that we don't want to allow, like as an industry. Uh, so I think those are those are two separate things. But I think like to, you know, to the to the business case of this entire thing, you know, one of the things at Riot was that they saw tr like hate speech and, you know, these types of things, prejudice and whatnot, being one of the number one. Uh, reasons for churn in the game right um, so it's, it's it's very very difficult to sort of um, calculate the business loss that happens because of hate speech and all these things mm -hmm. without running you know lots and lots and lots of studies at massive scale but we know from a you know an audience that's the size of riot that that was you know one of the top reasons for churn and we also know that most studios do not have the time to go and build these tools out so um, yeah. I think there's there's the moral obligation, but there's there's clear business use cases that have not been explored, and I think that's that's a really cool opportunity for us to both make the world a better place, but also um, hopefully make more yeah. make game developers more money too as well. Right. Okay, then maybe coming to our final topic, which is just around scaling challenges, and I think that um, I kind of think about this in, in a couple of ways. One. You know, certainly scaling a lot of things that um, a lot of the services you guys are doing, but also I thought it was interesting as we're seeing more integrations with like real live events and things like that, being able to scale services for custom events and things like that. Like, for example, in Fortnite, there was a Travis Scott concert. And just to put some stats in terms of scale, it had like 12.3 million players that participated. And so even for non-game related things, if you're doing an event or something in game, that scale may potentially have a big impact. And so, you know, maybe you guys could talk about, you know, what are some of the challenges associated with scale that you guys are going to take care of or that are generally like a pain in the ass for game developers to address when it comes to a lot of these online services? Yeah, I can take that one. Um, everything about scaling a complex backend system is a pain in the ass. <laughs> the only difference is that we love doing it. Um, <laughs> so that's why we want to do it. <laughs> um, it's a matter of perspective, really. So games are, in many ways, the worst possible thing to try to scale. Right? They have that weird thing where they don't exist until launch day, and then out of nowhere, they exist. And then we try to get everybody's attention, and everybody comes at once, and they go, I want to try this game. And so without having like gone through a growing up process, right? they're expected to be fully grown adults running at full tilt. Um, and many games are launched with peak concurrent user on day two or three or four and it will then decrease to stabilize afterwards but the steam masses have come i've played the game everybody's tried it and it, this is a tremendous volume of of pressure right and um you, you don't get a second first time it, 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 people will only judge you on your first launch not you know even for all that you know realm reborn has tried to relaunch we still all remember it's a terrible failure the first time um and so it is hard because you don't get the chance to do it and to discover where you went wrong so if you build it yourself you have to get all those little places that can go wrong when a hundred thousand people press a button at the same time they all have to be right and if you miss up just one then the server don't work well and that's all that people will remember they'll be like error 37 that's that's what I remember of this game. It was great. Cool error message. So it's unforgiving is what it is. It's completely unforgiving. Um, and it's so bad that even the big shops like Riot, right? Like, like who have operated League of Legends, giant game, were still shy. <laughs> they still do private launches. They still try to do Twitch drops and feed people into the system to make sure it warms up and that we suss out the problems. So if even the giant shop with like crazy good engineering benches are shy. Like what hope do you have as a 15 uh, engineer double A studio making a cool game to like get yeah. your backend right? It just, it boggles the mind that people would think that it, it has a high likelihood of, of working, right? And the cost of failure is so high. That yeah, I can terrible. actually give you a specific example, Nick. Even a big company, so Electronic Arts, when they first launched Simpsons Tapped Out, <laughs> they launched the game, the servers melted, 
And then they shut down the game for six months. So the game was down for six months Imagine until that. they fixed it. Then they relaunched. I mean, ultimately it was successful. But you think about it, like if they had figured it out, they could have had six months of additional revenue. But yeah, it's, so it, it, to your point, it's it massive. is a big deal. And, and then, then you see from a huge company. So. Yeah, and then, and then like on the, it's only half the battles making it. The other half of the battle is learning how to operate it. Right. And these, this is generally trial by fire for most people. Um, you, you build your game, you launch it, and then you figure out how it actually works when faced with a million users. And you grow your team commensurate to the complication that you've created for yourself when you cobble together your backend. And the more cobbled together it is, the bigger the team you now need to operate it live and the more failure cases you're facing. So that scale of going from works on my machine to works for the world uh, is gigantic and difficult. Um, in many ways, like Chris said it at the start, it's like trying to build Netflix at the same time as Pixar and hoping you land both, uh, you know, the cool video game that would be a Pixar and the cool online services that would be your services. And that's, that's quite difficult. Um, then on scaling your studio and your game for longevity, which is the domain of online experiences, right? They let, they, they stay with us for many, many years and we engage with them for many years and we love them for many years. If you started by custom crafting your backend. Somehow you made it true launch uh, and the people have still decided to enjoy your game and stick with you. You learn how to operate it. Now, now you're faced with the yet another problem, which is your code base is in a disastrous state. And this is a truism that happens every single time. Um, you had to emergency learn how to do this. You did it in whatever way it could work. Um, and your code base is in a rough state. And now you need hundreds of engineers to do anything and um, it will slow you down for years and years to come this could have been avoided if you'd started from some known good base thing right but but we don't do that um so so we're faced with these problems that the crux is the crux is what works for one person or 10 person or 100 person teaches you nothing or just about nothing of if it'll work for a million you, you know, in anything, you can make a lemonade stand for a hundred people and you can easily think about how to make it work. But if I tell you, you need a lemon stand for a million people, you don't even know where to get the lemons. Like it, it, it's a completely different question, um, with a completely different skill set. I think that's why it's so hard to scale them. Um, and you know, we want those things. We want those crazy scales. The world wants those crazy experiences, like the 12 million, or I don't know, what was it? 15 million to the, uh, players and Fortnite. For the for the concert or something like that. Order yeah, I think it was twelve point three million players uh, for the first concert, and then across all five is twenty seven point seven. Right, so that you know that means you, you need you need systems that oh, sure they weren't all in the same Fortnite game at the same time. You couldn't see ten million people on your screen. That, that would be ludicrous. Yeah. But um, but yeah, still they were connected and watching the same experience and sharing something together, which is which is crazy. So we want more of that, right? We want more of those crazy big scale things. And these are they're just blatantly hard to do. If they weren't hard to do, like. They wouldn't, we wouldn't be talking about them as such a big event, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't capture the imagination so much as they do today. Yeah. Right. And even that, like we said, they, they broke the, what they broke us down to what hundred person instances, I think. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, that's just how hard it is. Like, right. well, I mean, I, the, the feeding in of itself of doing what they did is, is, is crazy, but then you also have, they still couldn't put them in the same room right. or even get more than, you know, putting a hundred person, hundred people in the same room is, you know, hugely, you know, challenging. That's why even with the whole Battle Royale phenomenon, I mean, that's like the fact that we have the ability to play Battle Royale today is something that is, you know, extremely, you know, interesting, <laughs> you know, would have been possible, like, you know, very recently. Okay, well, I think that's all of the topics. Um, maybe in terms of, you know, Pragma, is there, Eden, is there a good way for people to find out more about what you guys are doing? And maybe you could tell us a little bit in terms of like your uh, product offering and when some of that stuff will become available. Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, if anyone has any questions about anything, that doesn't have to be about Pragma. It could just be about, um, you know, questions on backend systems or whatever. Um, it, it's just our first name at pragma.gg. So Nick, Chris, Eden, at pragma.gg. I'm on Twitter at Eden Chen as well. Um, so um, you could just, you know, feel free and to get I'll add all those links in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of like roadmap and whatnot, we are working with a 
kind of what we're calling like design partners. It's a very small set right now of customers that are um, working with us to build the product. Um, we're of the philosophy that um, it makes sense to build a product with an actual customer and not just go in a cave and build something that we think people need and then um, you know, hoping that people will sign up. Um, so we're working with um, one right now. We're probably going to um, take on an additional two to three over the next six to 12 months. And again, these are right now um, kind of what Chris was talking about, more of the triple um, I or double A, you know, folks that have come out of, so they're more experienced teams that understand why these problems are so difficult and want to work with the team that's done it before. Um, and our first sort of game will be launching sort of um, early next year, end of this year in closed beta. Um, and then our offering will be likely open to more of like, um, in a more public state, I'll say, I don't want to say in a, in a completely open public state, but probably by the end of um, next year. Um, and, uh, and I'm not going to be someone that just uh, throws out dates and then Nick and Chris are like, what the? Yeah. Well, when you guys are ready, let's, let's, <laughs> let's do another, let's do another recording of some kind. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more, but, but okay. I, uh, do you have any other final message for our audience? If not, you know, definitely want to thank you guys for your time and West wish you guys the best of luck. Yeah, I'd say like the final thing I want to say is um, the online services space is one that we're we're super passionate about, and we're wanting to see more communication amongst uh, the space as a whole. I think as a discipline, um, a lot of people haven't even known that it was a discipline or there was a name for it. It was called lots of different things. Um, GDC has done uh, something called the Online Tech Summit um, and uh, created a bunch of talks around that specific discipline. And then IGDA is doing things around online services as well. So um, if anyone's in this space and interested in connecting, we just want to um, you know, talk with you. It's you know, something that we're passionate about, not just for Pragma, but uh, as an industry as a whole, that we really hope we can sort of create a real kind of buzz around this specific discipline of like online services. Got it. All right, awesome. Okay, well, again, thanks for your time. And I think that's, that's a wrap. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Have a good one. Thanks. See ya.